very relevant book, book to me right now because remember, this book is written by Paul to the new young pastor Titus. So there's a lot that I can learn from this as a new young pastor. So I spend a lot of time in, in Titus and First and Second Timothy these days. So last week we basically talked about the gospel. We looked at the appearing of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, which basically is the gospel. Um, and then we looked at the effects of the gospel, which were a changed life, which God then uses to point non-Christians to Christ. And then third, we looked at the hope of the gospel, which is Christ's promise to appear again. Um, so these are the, these things that, that Titus um, is to declare, um, Paul says. So last week was all about the gospel, and tonight we're going to kind of narrow in and we're going to focus on the second point from last time, which was the effects of the gospel, which was a changed life. Right? Paul is going to instruct us more specifically just what a changed life by God should look like, and then the attitudes and the actions um, that should characterize such a life. So we're looking at how we should live in light of what God has done for us in the gospel. So two short verses, Titus 3, chapter 1 and 2. Sorry, two verses doesn't mean it'll be shorter. I have to just warn you up front. Two verses, still a lot in there. Uh, I'll follow along as I read. Um, this is God's word. Declare these things, exhort, oh sorry, starting in verse 15 of chapter 2. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Then chapter 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Let me pray real quick one more time as we begin. Father, thank you for this time. We thank you for the blessing and the opportunity to study your word. Father, I pray that your word would be a delight to us, Father, um, and not a drudgery. Father, I pray that you would bring your word to life and you would apply it to our hearts, Father, and you would glorify your son, Jesus Christ, in this time. I pray all these things in his name. Amen. All right, so last week, you'll remember, we, we, we talked about chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And we talked primarily about how those commands were for gospel-motivated living within the church. All right, so chapter 2, Paul writes and gives directives for how we are supposed to live within the church. All right, so our verses today, our two verses, are primarily about gospel-motivated living with respect to outsiders and to non-Christians. All right, chapter 2, 1 through 10 talks about how we're supposed to interact with each other in the church. These two verses here are going to primarily be some directives for how we are to conduct ourselves in respect to non-Christians. So verse 1, Paul talks primarily about our responsibility to the governing authorities. Then in verse 2, he talks about our responsibility to all people. Right? And then in this chapter, it's clear that that is specifically referring to non-Christians. So what Paul is going to do, he's going to give us seven duties, Christian duties, that apply to every one of us, no matter our context. So these are the attitudes and the dispositions that should always characterize true believers. These two verses define our obligation to the outside non-Christian culture. All right, so pay attention because I don't think we, we spend very much time talking about how we are called to interact with the non-Christian world. And that's what Paul is writing to us about today. Think about it. As Christians, we are kind of in a bit of a strange position. Right? We don't quite fit here in this world, do we? But we are specifically sent into the world and we are told to be here. We are told to be in the world, but not of the world. In John 17... So we very obviously live in the world, but we are not like the rest of the world. 
We are not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Romans chapter 12. So in a way, you'll see in Scripture, we are both called to hate the world and to love the world. How does that work? How do both of those things go together? We are to hate sin. We are to hate a world system that is opposed and hostile to God. But we are also called to live in the world and to serve the world and to interact with the world and to spread the gospel to the world. We would not do that if we utterly hated everyone and everything in the world. Okay, Jesus sends us in the Great Commission to the nations. He sends us to the world. All right? We have to be in and among the world if we are going to reach it. We cannot spread the gospel if we do not know anyone or have any interaction with anyone who is of the world and who is not a Christian. Paul makes this painfully clear. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a really interesting passage that I think um, Christians miss a lot. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 11, they're, they're dealing with, he's dealing with an issue, um, a bad issue in the church. He's addressing it. We're not going to get into the whole context. But look at chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter, a previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. All right, we, we understand that. Don't associate with sexually immoral people. But then he explains that. He says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. All right, what is Paul saying here? Paul is specifically telling us that we are to associate with the non-believing, sinful world. All right, he says, no, no, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying... Don't associate with sinners, because if that was the case, you couldn't associate with anyone in the outside world. He's saying, I'm specifically saying, don't associate with sinners who claim that they are Christians. Listen, Jesus spent a lot of time with sinners. And we have to as well, if we are going to share the gospel with them and minister to them. Jesus befriended sinners, including me, including all of us. And it was, in fact, the religious people of Jesus' day, as we've seen, that were attacking him constantly for hanging out with sinners. In Luke 7, they challenge him. They say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. All right, so we can kind of try and, and we can stand to get to know some of the people that Jesus spent so much time with. All right, it would provide us with great opportunities for the gospel. So we are explicitly called to live in and among and interact with the world and to be ministers to the world. So then in these two verses, Paul is giving us directives kind of concerning how we are to do that. Last time we saw Paul was writing about spiritual, heavenly realities. We are talking about the gospel. Now in this section he is reminding us of our earthly responsibilities. We are citizens first of a heavenly kingdom, but we are also called to be good citizens of whatever earthly kingdom God places us in as well. So notice there's a little pattern going on here in Paul's letter. Chapter 2, verses 1 and in this section from 2, 1 to 3, 7, this is kind of one big gospel chunk. All right, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is all a series of commands. All right, then the next section, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, is the gospel. Then chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, is another series of commands. And then chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, is the gospel. Right, so we have a pattern of imperative, indicative, imperative, indicative. 
All right, go back. I need you to go back to high school English. All right, are you familiar with these grammatical terms? All right, the indicative and the imperative are verb moods. All right, the mood of a verb is basically it's the manner, it's the way that that word or that action is intended. So the indicative mood of a word, it means that that word is meant to be taken as something that has happened. Right? The indicative is something that has been done or something that has happened. The imperative mood is called the mood of command. Right? It is something that we are to do. It is, a, it is a command. So the indicative is what God has already done. And the imperative is then what we are to do in response. So what is Paul doing? He is surrounding what we are supposed to do with what God has already done in Jesus Christ. Right? What God has already done is the basis for what we are supposed to do. Everything we're going to talk about. Godly living is impossible. Obeying Paul's commands here is impossible without the indicative first. Right? The indicative, what God has done, the gospel always comes first. The indicative is the fuel and the motivation for the imperative. The gospel is the fuel and the motivation for godly living. So in the New Testament, if you pay attention, you'll see that what we are commanded to do is always rooted in what God has already done for us. God acts first, then we act in response. Alright, so let's kind of get into the specifics of these two verses. Verse 1 starts off, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Notice before we get into it, he says, it doesn't say teach them, he says remind them. All right, the implication being that we should kind of already know some of this stuff. All right, we should recognize so that these are kind of natural implications of the gospel. Paul says, be um, submissive to rulers and authorities. Why? Well, it's like the, the great theologian John Cougar Mellencamp says, I fight authority, authority always wins. John Fuller, in another song about 20 years earlier, said, I fought the law. And the law won. These are silly, but I think pretty good pop songs. But there is some solid biblical truth behind these songs. They are just Romans 13 put to song. Ultimately, a rebel against the government is a rebel against God. The reason that authority and law always win is because there is no authority, Romans 13 says, except from God. So whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed. And let me read those two verses for you. Romans 13, 1 and 2. Paul's writing, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. This is why authority always wins. God has instituted the authority and God always wins. Thus, we are to be submissive to rulers and authorities because in so doing, we are ultimately being submissive to God, the sovereign ruler over the entire universe. Paul is making it clear that the Christian's obligation to respect and obey government, it does not rest on it just being a good or a democratic government, but it rests solely on its being the God-ordained means by which society is regulated. Listen, you'll hear people say generally, if you read this passage, like, well, look at our government now. It's, it's so terrible. You know, surely we're not supposed to be submissive to them. 
Well, you got to remember, context is key. When was Paul writing? <laughs> Paul was writing to Rome in about the 50s or the 60s AD. And he was writing during the reign of a man named Nero. Right? If anyone knows anything about Nero, you will know that he wasn't the biggest fan of Christians. Right? Some traditions say, though we don't know for sure, but traditions say that it was Nero who was responsible for Peter and Paul's death. And whether he is or not is not important because the point is that Paul is not writing here to Christians living in this kind of Disney world, kumbaya, Christian-loving, safe government. We have it much easier than the Roman Christians that Paul was writing to did. And they were commanded to be submissive to their rulers and authorities. Right? If they can do it, we can do it too. So, uh, submissive to rulers and authorities, and then related to that, naturally we are told to be obedient. Before we talk about the specific context of that here in this verse, I want to briefly kind of talk about a theology of obedience. We talked about it a little bit last time. We've been talking about it on Sunday mornings occasionally. In John 14, 15, Jesus says pretty simply, If you love me, you will obey what I command. Thus, there is a very intimate connection between obedience and salvation. Alright, I'll explain what that is. Don't, don't get up in arms yet. Then in verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and he will come to me, and we will make our home with him. John keeps up this theme in his letters. First John 2, 3, he says, We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. And again in 5, 3, this is love for God to obey his commands, but his commands are not burdensome. Listen, there can be no love without obedience. Obedience is the fruit. It is the result. It is the evidence that our hearts have been changed from a position of hatred to a position of love toward God. A little more John. All right, I love John. I think John 3.36 is one of the most interesting and unfortunately overlooked verses in the Bible. Part of the problem is why. It comes right after John 3.16. And everybody loves John 3.16. And they should. It's really good. But John 3.36 doesn't get any love. Uh, John 3.16. We all know it. God so loved the world. He gave his only son so that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Most famous verse in the Bible, and for good reason. It is a beautiful summary of the gospel. But sometimes our overemphasis of this verse, to the exclusion kind of of some other clear biblical truths, has tended to lead towards some dangerous, easy believism. You know, just say this magic prayer, say you believe in Jesus, and you're good to go. Right? Just say this prayer, just walk this aisle, and you can go on living however you want. You're, you're safe. But John 3.36 quickly does away with such a notion. It says, you're going to you're gonna have to listen to me here because yours might say something different. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. All right, it starts off good. We understand that. That makes perfect sense. All right, we've got that. That's what John 3.16 says. But the verse goes on. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains in him. Wait a second, kind of what just happened? It seems that kind of John has pulled the old switcheroo on us here. Shouldn't the verse say, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, whoever does not believe the Son shall not see life? That would seem to make sense, but that's not what the Greek says. And by the way, that is exactly, that is actually what it will say in the King James Version, but the Greek um, is, is kind of, is off here. Every other translation will say that that second half is obey. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not 
see life. John is making a very clear link, as he does over and over again in his gospel and his letters, between belief and obedience. John is always paralleling the two. We said last time that everyone that God justifies, he also sanctifies. Right? It's the same thing here. Everyone who truly believes also obeys. Right? You cannot have saving faith without obedience. Obedience to God is an issue of eternal importance. You cannot believe in God and love God without obeying God. And you cannot be saved without believing in and loving God. So obedience is an absolutely necessary fruit of salvation. Right? Make sure and get the order right. right? Don't hear me saying something. It's not obedience, then salvation. Right? It, is, it is the salvation which then leads to the obedience. All right? The works don't come before the salvation. We're not saved because of our goodness or because of our works. We are saved by God's grace. And then the obedience and the works follow by God's grace. All right? So make sure and don't get the order wrong. So that's kind of a little bit of John and obedience. It's all over um, all of his writings. But with all that said, our specific verse here in Titus is not particularly talking about obedience toward God. It is related to what came before it. It is our required submission to authorities. Of course, we are to be obedient to God because without obedience, we demonstrate that there has been no salvation. But in this specific context here, Paul is talking about general obedience in everyday life. Like obedience to governing authorities, obedience to parents, obedience to bosses, obedience um, to your leaders. Um, Like we've said, Paul's main focus in this section is encouraging genuinely Christian living for the sake of outsiders, for non-Christians. So by our obedience in all areas of authority, we stand out from the world. We live in a world of sin where independence and rebellion and a rejection of all things authority are in. We don't like authority these days. We don't like being told what to do. But that's not a Christian idea. By being obedient, by being good citizens in our earthly kingdoms, we adorn the gospel. We bear witness to its truth and its power to change lives. Remember, we the community of radically changed Christians doing life together, loving each other, like we said last week, are the final apologetic for the gospel. Our lives testify to the gospel. They point people toward Christ. And one of the best ways that we can do that is through our obedience because it stands out these days. Then there in the last part of verse 1, Paul tells us that we are to be ready for every good work, which is the fruit of our salvation. It is the necessary outworking of our faith. We are to be ready for every good work. It is what we are to do in response to our salvation by grace. Remember, the works come after the salvation. But again, remember context. We're talking about obligations toward non-Christians. So he doesn't primarily have in mind here kind of this general category of good works that result from a life changed by God's grace. But he is specifically commanding us to be ready to perform every good work toward the non-Christians around us. Paul is talking about a sincere and eager desire to serve non-Christians. No matter how hostile the society around us may be, we are to be good to the people in it whose lives intersect with ours. 
Plus, we gain a platform to preach the gospel when we do so. It has always been God's purpose for His people to be righteous and holy as a testimony to His righteousness and holiness before the unbelieving world. We are called in Matthew 5.16 to be lights in the world um, so that they may see our works and what? Glorify God. Our good works in service of non-Christians point them towards Christ. So we have submissiveness to authorities, obedience, and readiness for good works. Let's, let's move on to verse 2. I'm going to break verse 2 down into two parts. We have two kind of couplets here. Two negatives and two positives. We are first told to speak evil of no one. All right, now that doesn't mean we are to never rebuke or to never criticize. Both Jesus and Paul spent much of their ministries lovingly rebuking. And just two verses ago, Paul specifically told Titus to rebuke. Okay? Rebuke, when done correctly, is a good and necessary thing. But, non-Christian world. Remember 1 Corinthians 5, just a second ago. How we are to associate with non-Christian sinners, but we are not to associate with Christians who are living in a life of unrepentant sin. That passage actually goes on. Paul writes back there in 1 Corinthians 5, now in verses 12 through 13, he says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. It is not our job to sit around and judge and condemn the outside world. God will take care of that. Our focus, we are told, is to be on judging those inside the church and protecting the purity and the witness of the church. Our focus needs to be on the church. We have so much to do here that we don't need to be constantly obsessing over all those terrible sinners out there. We are to speak evil of no one. And Paul here specifically talking about non-Christians. We are to be salt and light in the world. And that is not something that we can do if we are constantly walking around and complaining about non-Christians and slandering them. Especially on Facebook. Right? Just go read Facebook during an election. You'll see a lot of Christians talking like non-Christians. Right? One commentator I was reading in this passage writes, When Christians become hostile to government and to society in general... They almost inevitably become hostile to the unsaved leaders of that government and the unsaved citizens who live in that society. We cannot become enemies of the very ones we seek to win to Christ. Our potential brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are called to speak evil of no one. Even those whom we strongly disagree with. And when we do, we ruin our witness and we discredit the gospel. It is a tragic thing that so many Christians speak so contemptuously of politicians and other non-Christians, especially in open public arenas. I am mortified sometimes by how Christians talk about non-Christians in public places. They fail to realize that they are hindering the work of the gospel and they are directly disobeying the clear word of God in these few verses. We are to speak evil of no one. That's it. It's that simple. Not even those who directly reject biblical standards. Listen, we should not be surprised when sinners act like sinners. Right? They are sinners. It is their nature. That is how they are going to act. Next, Paul tells us to avoid quarreling. And that word just means not fighting or or peaceable. 
But it came kind of primarily to mean not contentious. So it's not about physical fights. It is about verbal fights and quarrels. It's about unity and getting along with others. So there is a clear link between these two commands. If you are to speak evil of no one, if you're actually doing that, then you are going to majorly limit your chances for quarrel. Right? It's pretty simple. Paul is is commanding us here to be generally friendly and peaceable toward the lost not belligerent, and not constantly complaining and picking fights with them. Dominic, think about it. You don't have to answer out loud, but just kind of process in your mind. When people think of you, do they think of you as peaceable or quarrelsome? Are you constantly picking fights with and complaining publicly about the behavior of non-Christians? We have no right to become angry and hostile toward unbelievers when they act like unbelievers. It is their nature. And what Paul says, he says, and such were some of you. And in the very next verse, next week, we'll see that it was our nature too. That's what next week will be about, that we were just like them. Right, so one of the reasons we are called to treat non-believers so well is that, that we were just like them before Jesus Christ. It was only because of God's grace that we are any different from them now. There was nothing better about us. There was nothing good in us that set us apart from them. It was only Jesus Christ dying for us and saving us that changes us. So we are by nature no better than they are. And we are commanded to deal with them peaceably and kindly. So those are our two negatives, speak evil of no one and to avoid quarreling. But he also gives us two positives. We are to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And to be gentle, that's fairly self-explanatory. All right, that's related to our previous two qualities. Part of gentleness is not speaking evil of others and not being quarrelsome. This word means fair or equitable or mild. Some have translated it sweet reasonableness. That seems a little over the top, but the command here is just to generally treat non-Christians kindly and fairly. It's that simple. And then last but not least, we are to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Not pretty good courtesy, perfect courtesy. Apparently, if you're only showing mostly good courtesy, you're failing. Um, This word in the Greek is very similar to our last word. It can be translated as gentleness or meekness or humility. But but partnered with the verb show or demonstrate, as it is here, it translates as showing perfect consideration. So the the word is the very opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. It is not being focused on the self at all, but being completely outwardly Focused, putting others before yourself. It is putting your neighbor first and loving your neighbor as yourself. This is the second great commandment. And I've said it a hundred times, but I'm not yet, but I'm not done yet. That Paul is giving us this commandment specifically in reference to non-Christians, right? Even to those who would do us evil. We are to show perfect courtesy toward all people, even in the midst of persecution and suffering. Tell me, have you been showing perfect courtesy these last couple months to those whom you strongly disagree with? How do you talk about people on Facebook? Are you constantly grumbling and complaining about all those terrible sinners out there? So in just these two short verses, I think Paul has given me at least this um, very convicting summary of what our attitude and our behavior is to be to the outside world. We are to be submissive, obedient, ready for good works, speaking evil of no one, avoiding quarreling, gentle, and showing perfect courtesy toward all people. That is seven things. 
Tell me, do these seven qualities characterize your behavior? And not just your general behavior, but your attitude toward the outside world. Listen, I think we, we tend to struggle with this because we live in a culture that was once very recently dominated and heavily influenced by Christianity. All right, those of you who are older in here can specifically remember that time. I just have to read the books about it. But our culture used to much more clearly evidence Christian values and foundations. And it angers us sometimes when we watch kind of the erosion of that influence. And then as we let ourselves get frustrated or angry about that, we sometimes let our attitude and our behavior toward the culture display, it, display that anger quite clearly. Right? But we have to be above that. Such an attitude is in direct contradiction to the important lesson that Paul is teaching us here. Paul is calling us, even in the midst of a culture in moral decline, to have this kind of attitude toward our rulers and toward the non-Christian community around us. This attitude is summed up perfectly in the last statement. We are to show perfect courtesy toward all people, including those whom we strongly disagree with. What is your attitude toward your leaders and toward sinful non-Christians? Does it match these qualities that Paul is commanding us to have? And I know that mine at times has not. And that is something that I'm constantly having to repent of and, and come back to this passage about. But it all starts with, and it is all rooted in the gospel. And just in case we missed that in our message last time, Paul is going to drive it further home in the next few verses. The more gospel is on the way. Next week is all about the gospel again. The gospel is the fuel and the foundation for our actions and our attitudes, both those inside the church and those outside the church. We are to be people that are marked by obedience and kindness and peace and gentleness and perfect courtesy. Why? First, because those are the things that do not mark the world. And we are to be different and to stand out from the world. But, Secondly, and much more importantly, we are to be these things and do these things because these are the qualities that marked our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in His interactions with the non-Christian world. And it is our call to be conformed to His image. We are to be like this, these seven things, because this is what Christ was like. He perfectly embodied these seven qualities that Paul is calling us to exhibit. First, submissive to rulers and authorities. Jesus was the ultimate example of this. In Philippians 2.8, Paul writes that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ was the only actually innocent man in history. He did nothing wrong, yet he willingly submitted himself to the Jewish and the Roman authorities and gave up his life. With just a thought, he could have had an army of angels at his side. He created and sustained and he gave the very breath to the men that were sentencing him and mocking him and crucifying him. Yet he humbly was submissive to the authorities. We are to be submissive to rulers and authorities because Christ was submissive to rulers and authorities. Second, Jesus was the only truly obedient man in history. In John 14, 31, he says, But the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Jesus never sinned, and thus he never disobeyed. We are to be obedient because Christ himself was obedient. And third, Jesus was the only man who was truly ready for every good 
work. Just go and read the Gospels. Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. In Acts 10, 38, Peter talks about Jesus who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Jesus spent three years wandering around and serving others at great expense to himself. And this was just a warm-up to the ultimate good deed, the ultimate act of service, his death on the cross for sinners. We are to be ready for every good work because Christ was ready for every good work. Fourth, Jesus was the only man who ever actually spoke evil of no one. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. 1 Peter 2, 23 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Listen, in the middle of the greatest injustice and evil in all of history, Jesus spoke not one word of ill will toward the men carrying out these unspeakable acts. If there was a time to speak evil of someone, this was that time. But Jesus did not. We are to speak evil of no one because Christ spoke evil of no one. Fifth, Jesus was the only man who ever perfectly avoided quarreling. In Matthew 12, Jesus quotes Isaiah 42 about himself. He says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Jesus was always humble and kind to others, even to the very people who were torturing him and crucifying him. We are to avoid quarreling because Christ avoided quarreling. Sixth, Jesus was the only man who was ever truly gentle. In 2 Corinthians 10.1, Paul writes of the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. In Matthew 11.29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We are to be gentle because Christ was gentle. And finally, seven, Jesus was the only man who actually showed perfect courtesy toward all people. He was completely submissive and obedient. He was always ready for every good work. He never spoke evil of anyone. He never quarreled, quarreled, and he was always gentle. We are to show perfect courtesy toward all people because Christ showed perfect courtesy toward all people. This is our Jesus, all right? This is who our Savior is and what he was like. This is the gospel. We are to do and be these things because Christ was and did them first. We are to love because he first loved us. And he demonstrated his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, every one of us is a sinner. We all know it. We all fall woefully short of these seven qualities that we are commanded to fulfill, but Christ doesn't. He lived the life we couldn't, and he died the death we should have. Jesus in our place. He died, and then he rose. Sin has been defeated. Death has been defeated. Eternal life has been secured. And all he asks us is that we repent and believe. We, we turn from our sin, and we trust in him. You cannot and you will not ever be like the person described in these two verses without Jesus Christ and without God's grace first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for the word. Uh, We thank you that in it um, you challenge us, Father. Um, You don't tell us that everything is great and we're fine just how we are, Father, but you tell us that we are to be different. 
Father, you tell us that you care about how we act and how we live. Oh, Father, we thank you that you don't just give us a list of rules that we fail miserably to keep. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to come and keep those rules for us, to fail, to succeed where we failed so miserably. But Father, we thank you that we have one who has lived perfectly. We thank you that we have a Savior who has perfectly fulfilled these seven qualities in our place. Thank you for giving us grace. We thank you for imputing to us Christ's righteousness. We thank you for sanctifying us and making us more like him every day. Father, we could not do these things. We confess that we still struggle to do these things, to do these things, Father. We need your grace. We need your help and your spirit working in our hearts, Father. I pray that you would um, just kind of sear this passage into our minds, Father. As we go into the world, Father, for the rest of our week, six days, Father, we spend out in the world. I pray that this passage would be on our minds as we come in contact with those who who hate you, Father, and those who do things that we know are against you um, and against your will. Father, help us to see them and understand them from a biblical perspective, Father, not to excuse sin, Father, not to go along and sin with them, Father, um, not to call sin good, but, Father, to still be able to love them and to serve them, Father, and preach the gospel to them, um, just as Christ did um, to the sinners around him. So, Father, I pray that you would change our hearts. Father, make us more like your son. Father, forgive me for how short I fall of these seven things. Forgive me for how quick I am to quarrel, Father, and how ungentle I can be at times. Father, we confess that um, we cannot do this without you. So we pray that you would work and you would make this church a place where non-Christians can come in and feel safe and welcome, Father, and they can hear the gospel. Father, they can hear how sinful they are and how that sin is not okay but that we will love you and preach the gospel to them, Father. And we pray that you would work in this place um, and you would glorify your name through Woodside Community Church. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you guys for coming. You are dismissed.